This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the death toll caused by fires is trending upwards nationwide, and wildfire intensity has also increased. FEMA has a new plan to combat the problem. Then, one expert says the West should prepare for Russia to lose. We talk about different scenarios for Putin's defeat and the chaos that could follow. And federal managers are always searching for effective ways to retain workers. A new study outlines ways agencies can keep employees from leaving. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. The U.S. Fire Administration is a component of FEMA. They're launching a national strategy to combat an increase in deadly fires. Lori Moore-Merrill is U.S. Fire Administrator. Lori, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. So you write something that was shocking to me. Quote, in this country, your chances of dying in a fire today are higher than 40 years ago. Why is that? Today we have building materials that are far less resistant to fire than years ago. We have a lot of lightweight construction. We have even the contents in our home or more plastics, more foam. These things burn much more quickly. That's why we say fire is fast. So it's important that we have escape plans because as you noted, we are less likely to escape fire today because it is so fast. So we need to know our plan to get out and your chances of dying, consequently, are much higher than they were in any time in history. So, so why now do we have less time to safely exit a, a burning building than we did before? What's, what's behind that? It is the speed of fire and the progression of fire, how quickly it moves because the contents are um, so flammable. We also have a lot of building, particularly in public housing, a lot of buildings that are not equipped with sprinkler systems, for example, automatic fire suppression systems. We also have uh, in public housing a good bit of stock that was built prior to the 1992 Fire Safety Act. And so we have over a half million, HUD tells us. Many of those have not been retrofitted. And so after 1992, most of our public housing, uh, well, all of it, was mandated to have sprinkler systems and hardware smoke alarms. So we have this building stock that still is not alarmed appropriately. It doesn't have automatic suppression. And so moving quickly and having an escape plan um, is the best way to go. We have other safety features that must be built in, self-closing doors, for example, and having uh, these hardwired or tamper-proof uh, smoke alarms that are installed. Well, you, you mentioned um, public housing because fire deaths, injuries, displacement disproportionately affect communities of color and disadvantaged communities. What's behind that and what are you doing about that? So in the country in 2022, we had 1.2 million structure fires across the nation, not to mention the 66,000 wildfires that burned and 2,500, uh, nearly 2,500 fire deaths, including 276 children and 96 firefighters. Disproportionately, almost two thirds of those were in poor communities and affected people of color. And we're just talking about the fire deaths. This doesn't even talk about the toll on people who were injured or lost everything. And so we are looking into the inequities because some people would even say it's a social injustice of sorts, right? That we have to pay attention to the disproportionate impact on these communities. 
There's also a firefighter shortage. Um, what's causing that? Obviously, it's a very dangerous job, but what's, what's going on there? And, and again, what are you going to do about that? So we have a national strategy where the fire service has come together. Um, all of the heads of their nation's fire organizations, for everything from management to labor, to our volunteer cadre, to uh, NFPA, for example, all of our research agencies, we are standing together for the first time in history. They are working with U.S. Fire Administrator to say we have to be as one because we do have this shortage. We know that we have to do better in recruitment. We're looking at part of that coming together is creating a national strategy. One of the national strategy goals is to formulate a national apprenticeship program. Look at models that have already been developed over in the Department of Labor, for example. Can we replicate that on the fire side? Because if we do not, in three, five, seven years, we're going to have a vast shortage of firefighters in this country while we are looking at increasing incident of fire. And the last thing we want is there's not enough fire firefighters to respond to your fire when your house is on fire. Well, firefighters are also at a higher risk for some cancers. Uh, they're exposed to high amounts of PFAS, chemicals. What's being done to help them? So you're exactly right. The firefighter death rate um, from cancer is very high. In fact, 75% of firefighters who die last year, 75% of them were from cancer the exposures to the products of combustion that they um, encounter. I mentioned foams, I mentioned plastics, all of these things as they burn, put off carcinogenic chemicals, not the least of which, as you said, PFAS. Um, we have to pay attention to getting that out of our living environment because it's affecting everyone, not just firefighters, but because they are uh, experiencing it firsthand on their gear and in fact in their gear and so we're working very hard right now with our other government partners like NIOSH for example to look at how do we develop and of course the industry how do you develop fabrics to make the garments that do not contain PFAS and so we're working very hard to address that and also in our fire suppressant foam AFFF uh, we call it that also contains PFAS so both of these have to be addressed going forward. Firefighters also have higher risk of mental health issues, including PTSD. Are there um, programs that you're running that would help them? So that is, uh, the programs themselves are going to be more uh, outside in the industry. And yes, there are programs. Um, the IAFF has programs. Our National Fallen Firefighter Foundation also developing a lot of materials and others. What we are addressing is the PTS level that matches that of their military. Firefighters, uh, we talk a lot about things they can't unsee. I told you about the fire deaths and I told you how many children. Imagine that memory of pulling a child uh, who's been burned, who's died in a fire, right? You don't forget that. You don't unsee those things. And so they carry this with them throughout a career. And that's just the least of which uh, of the things that they see. And so we have to address this because our suicide rates are continuing to escalate. And very quickly, I mean, you mentioned before, there's lots of homes and buildings that don't have fire alarms. Is there something the federal government can do about mandating that? That's a great, great question. Uh, we have a couple of laws that have recently been passed. One uh, based on the Pennsylvania fire just a year ago where 12 people lost their lives, nine of them children. In that home there were smoke alarms that had either been disabled um, or non-existent, right? So three out of five fires in this country have smoke alarms that are either not working or they're absent. We have a new law that says, if in public housing particularly, if you do not have hardware smoke alarms, then you must now install 
uh, either hardwire or tamper-proof smoke alarms so All that right. this no longer happens. Lori, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. After the break, Ukraine is likely to defeat Russia, according to my next guest. We'll ask her what the U.S. should do to prepare. We'll be right back. Putin is headed for defeat in Ukraine, and that would affect global stability. That's according to Liana Fix. She's a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Liana, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. So you write this, quote, any semblance of diplomatic dialogue among Russia, Ukraine, and the West has vanished. Why is that such a remote possibility? It is because we've only seen negotiations at the very beginning of this war. In Istanbul, we had a round of negotiations between Ukraine and Russia in the immediate months after the war. But there are very fundamental doubts about Russia's willingness to negotiate seriously. So when we see now that Putin demands he's ready for negotiations if Ukraine just accepts that he has annexed four territories, there are a lot of doubts that he's just using that as a pretext to take a break and then to re-attack Ukraine. So negotiations need trust and that's not what we have with Vladimir Putin as a negotiation partner. So are any negotiations possible? They will be possible, but the question is on which terms do those negotiations take place? Do they take place on Putin's terms, so he decides what are the preconditions? Or do they take place on an equal basis? So what Ukraine needs to do is to come into a position on the battlefield where Vladimir Putin is forced to take those negotiations seriously. What makes you so sure that Russia is headed for defeat? Well, the latest news that we've seen from Moscow right now is that Putin once again is restructuring his military leadership, putting again the general that was actually, who was actually quite successful in, um, in, in the last months, putting him, uh, giving him a demotion once again. So we see there is chaos and disorder on the Russian side. But that is just what we see right now. What we've seen in the last months is that all of Putin's war aims, which he had, have not been achieved. So there's really, in terms of his overall war aim, there's nothing that he can do to get back to the point where he wanted to occupy Ukraine and to change the government. So he's headed for defeat, which does not necessarily mean that Ukraine is headed for victory because the form that defeat takes will be crucial. That's the question. What does defeat look like for Putin? Well, my, my colleague Michael Kimmich and I um, have tried to identify three options of defeat. One is defeat after negotiations on Ukraine terms, defeat after escalation. If Putin uses nuclear weapons, it would only accelerate his defeat. Um, and the other is defeat after regime change, so domestic instability in Russia. I want to talk to you about each of those, yes. especially the one about going nuclear. Under yeah. what circumstances would that happen? We've seen in the past that Putin has tried to draw wet lines around the new territories that he has annexed. And Ukraine immediately tested those wet lines and called them a bluff. Putin didn't use nuclear weapons. So the question really is, is there a wet line which is serious from Russia's side? And there are doubts about Crimea, sort of a military takeover of Crimea, that that could be a wet line where nuclear use could again come in, back into the equation. But for all the other territories, I think nuclear use at the moment is not something to be uh, very concerned about. So the other scenario is regime collapse and you write this quote Russians will continue marching behind their inept czar only to a certain point. What is that point? 
that point is when they have a feeling that this war is very much futile, that whatever amounts of their own sons they throw into this war, there's no turning point. So at the moment we see that for Russians it's very much, they continue their lives as it has been. Um, there were 300,000 Russian men um, uh, sent to Ukraine or prepared for being sent to Ukraine. There are rumors about a new wave of 500,000 Russian men to be sent to Ukraine. Only at that moment when Russians will feel this has a negative impact on my life, but it's not changing anything in Ukraine. We are still on the losing side. Might they have this feeling that Russians had in 1917 when Russia lost the First World War that they might want to rebel against the leadership? You also say that Russia's defeat would cause regional and global disorder. What would that look like? And more importantly, how does the U.S. prepare for that kind of disorder? And that's one of the point we, points we make. I mean, obviously, Russia's defeat will open up a bright future for Ukraine. And it might also open up a bright future for other Russian neighbors. But we should be prepared for the other scenario, that it will not be a golden age of stability. And that's especially the case if we look at the South Caucasus and if we look at Central Asia. Because in those regions, we had inherent instabilities. Um, we have China, which is trying to move into these regions for years. We have Turkey, which would use the vacuum that a Russian collapse in these regions would create to expand their own power. So the United States should prepare for that, not by being the dominant power in Central Asia and so in the South Caucasus. I mean, that would definitely be an overstretch, but to be aware that we will see major power plays in those regions and to offer an alternative to those countries and to say, if you look for stability, the United States can help you with that. What's the best case scenario for, from the American perspective, what's the worst case scenario as far as geopolitics in that area go? Let's start with the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is certainly a regime change in Russia, which is unclear, where Russian nuclear weapons, or where it's unclear where Russian nuclear weapons will end. And this was also the concern after the end of the Soviet Union. Um, which is also why back then the United States tried to keep the Soviet Union together out of concern where will Russia's nuclear weapons go. So some kind of disorderly regime change, collapse of Russia, disintegration can be a really dangerous scenario. The best case scenario would be if Russia agrees to negotiations on Ukraine's terms, withdraws from Ukraine, and then we see some kind of reckoning in Russia, within the Russian leadership, which says, well, we need someone else than Putin. Uh, than Putin. It will not become someone completely different, but it might be someone who's just a little bit more um, open to uh, yeah, working on this terrible heritage and legacy that Russia has left in Ukraine. All right, Liana, thank you so much. Thank nice you. to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what makes an employee leave an organization? A new study sought to find the answer and what federal managers can do to keep them around. It turns out that pay isn't the main reason government employees leave their jobs. That's just one of the findings of a new study conducted by Gordon Abner. He's an assistant professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Gordon, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. 
So let's start with the bottom line. What makes a public sector employee most likely to stay on at an organization? Well, one of the keys is for employees not to feel emotionally exhausted at work. A lot of times public employees do jobs that have a lot of emotional labor involved. And so making sure employees are not exhausted with their work. Um, another important factor is for employees to have support from their supervisor um, and procedural justice to make sure that the work policies are fair. Um, it's another important factor. So some of those are some of the factors that um, really stand out uh, from the study. And I guess on the flip side, uh, what did you find as the, the biggest reason for public sector employees to leave their jobs? Is it those not having those things that you just mentioned? Exactly, not having those things, not being satisfied in one's job, as you can imagine. So it's important for people, organizations to choose the right people for the job. Another thing I want to mention, this is with Dr. Hyun Kang Her, who was the lead author of the study. So I want to really give him a shout out as well. And even before hiring, what did you find that managers can do that can help increase that employee retention? Yeah, that's a good point. So, you know, even before hiring, a number of things is, you know, be true about the job announcements, right? So if you want to have people who are a good fit for the job, who are going to ultimately be satisfied for the job, it's important to make sure that um, people really know what they're going to get into and being honest about that. Uh, public service motivation matters. So people who are more sort of service oriented um, are less likely to turn over or want to leave their jobs. So that's another key factor. Um, so those are some of the factors. It was also interesting to find that a lot of the demographics didn't matter very much in terms of turnover intention. So age, gender, tenure, uh, supervisory status, those sorts of things didn't uh, matter a whole lot. So I find that uh, surprising, Gordon, because you would think that, you know, especially in the public sector, the younger employees might, uh, you know, want to move on. Uh, they might get bored quickly and, and the older ones feel like, you know, I've been in it for this long. Let me just stay. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, so one thing that is important to uh, note is that when we talked about leaving the organization, um, retirement wasn't a part of that. So um, that sort of explains a little bit. But you're right. I mean, there are some folks are noticing some um, ge are generational differences. And so that's something to explore more in future studies uh, to see if that's true over the long term. And you know, rec recruiters will always say that the mission is the draw for a government job, as you had mentioned that before. How big of a draw is, is that public service mission to retention of government employees? Yeah, that's a great point. It's a really key factor. Obviously, people don't work in government necessarily for the pay, um, and so the mission matters a whole lot. And, you know, to a large extent, you know, if you're working government, it's not like you can easily go somewhere else necessarily and get a whole lot more pay. And so the work environment matters, the mission matters, and uh, making that really salient to employees and not just at the beginning, but while they're working there as well, that they really get to contribute to something bigger than themselves. And your study also found that when um, employees feel more involved in the decision making process, they are more likely to stay. How does that translate into um, what, what managers, what federal managers can really do to include employees more? Because it's not every decision, you, you know, you could do that. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. Um, and so, you know, this is especially uh, important for senior leaders who are making a lot of the big decisions about um, what the agency is going to prioritize, right? Um, it's not necessarily easy to go around and ask everybody, 
you know, what they want to do going forward. But, um, you know, there's you can at least make an effort. Obviously, the federal government has a, a, a survey every year, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. And so incorporating that, um, you can have learning or listening sessions and things like that. There are um, federal human capital managers who have uh, various sessions and things like that. So not everybody's going to get what they want, obviously, as you're suggesting. But it's important for people to at least feel like they were listened to. And I think, you know, you can at least do that. You know, it's said that in general, people leave jobs because of bad bosses. Was that also the case for public sector workers? Was it the, the same to the same extent as in the general population? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so we tried to compare our findings here for the public sector to research on the private sector. Um, and believe it or not, in terms of meta-analyses, so, you know, combining a bunch of individual studies and in that particular sector, there wasn't as many, the studies didn't compare as long as, along the same number of dimensions as we did in our study. So some of those things were difficult to compare across studies. But um, what's interesting to note is that work environment mattered there and work environment matters here. Um, and I, I think a lot of times, obviously pay does matter, but even in the meta-analyses for the private sector, it mattered a lot less than what people often think. Um, and so, yes, as you're suggesting, the work environment just matters um, for the public sector and for the private sector uh, to a large extent. Was there anything that really surprised you in, in these findings, Gordon? Um, I don't know if surprising is the word, but I would say certainly um, it really it really highlighted something as far as the, the, the work exhaustion. I think that was, um, I guess you can say surprising, but th that's really a key factor. Um, and so, you know, as we think about what we ask government employees to do, we, it's important to make sure we don't ask them to do too much. Um, and so I think that was one of the things that sort of really stood out to me. All right. Well, Gordon, nice to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 and Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. on WJLA 24-7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, 
back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right, well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi, nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.